This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and find your new favorite pair of boots today. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to BlackBuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, John Girak, I'm going to start by kind of, um, I'm going to make you uncomfortable and butter you up. Uh, you, I've wanted to talk to you for, for 20 years i think or what year did trout bum come out um mid 80s maybe 86 i didn't discover it till a little bit later than that but i've been wanting to talk to you since i did because there's a thing like like that book which was your first book right no because you had a you had a the fly fish in the high countries before that yeah but trout bum fell into when I say our lap, I mean the laps of me, my brothers, and like our main hunting and fishing friends that we grew up with. And it fell into our lap at this time in life that uh, will always stick in my head because it was, we were kind of coming out of, uh, coming out of college, being mid-college, and there was just this... Uh, tremendous amount of anxiety that was unspoken at the time but there was sort of like a lot of there's just like like this palpable anxiety in the air about what we were all gonna what was gonna happen to us all yeah Jimmy, well, like, not like now right <laughs> no i have i just feel like i know better i kind of like now i have anxiety about my kids right but at the time i just yeah i know i kind of could picture it all now but at the time i couldn't picture it and there's like a tremendous amount of anxiety but there's a thing that we were just discovering is that that We'd all grown up fishing all the time because yeah. our dads fished. We just fished. But all of a sudden, it was like 
it seemed like there's so much possibility out in the world and we were starting to, to, to screw around with traveling to go places and, and just do nothing and almost making like a conscious decision to not have a lot of the material goods that you saw other people going toward at that age mm-hmm. because we were just really in love with just messing around with our friends and camping and pooling your money together to buy gas to go fish somewhere and doing these things that didn't make sense and you're doing all the stuff that doesn't make sense and you felt like anxiety about it and some level of guilt about it because it, it didn't seem sustainable and seem foolish and childish, but we were so in love with how we were living. And then I read when your book came out, man, and I remember this so clearly all these years later and all the things I've read since then, but it was like, it made me feel like, oh my God, this is okay. Like this is a thing that people do and that happens to people and there's like a way you can live your life like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I recognize everything you said except the guilt part. I never felt an ounce of guilt. You never had the guilt? No. No, but you grew no. Up I in just, like a, you grew up in a working class family, though. Yeah. That didn't rub off. I mean, not that you don't work, but I mean, you didn't have that sense of like that you needed to be, that you needed to be doing something you didn't like. Well, I had the sense I needed to make a living, and I always did. I mean, I worked all kinds of jobs. Um, even while I was writing, I worked a lot of odd jobs and part-time jobs and full-time jobs sometimes and just to get by. Because you were brought up in Ohio, right? Well, born in uh, Illinois, small town Illinois. Moved to uh, Minnesota for a while. Moved to Ohio. Dad worked for Sears, so we moved around. Uh, I was in Ohio for my last two years of high school, and then I went to college in Ohio. And then after that, I was just, I was in New York, I was in Colorado, I was in Haight-Ashbury, I was... Really? And you studied philosophy. Yeah. Like, explain that. Like, I don't mean explain philosophy, but what was your... What was <laughs> yeah, your like, I was going to say, what, how long you got, man. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, like, why? I mean, what kind of led you to that? Um, well, I started out as an English major, and uh, always hard for me to say that without thinking of Garrison Keillor now. But um, I don't know. I didn't like the way they taught. It's an arrogant thing to say, but I didn't like the way they taught English literature. It was just, you know, it was like it was code, and you were supposed to decode it, and it was like they kept asking, what does the author mean? And I kept asking, why can't he just mean what he said? Yeah. I remember that being, I remember that being difficult too. And then the way they kind of march you through the timeline being frustrating as well. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, we'll start with Beowulf. Yeah, yeah. And this year we'll make it to Shakespeare, and then we'll pick up and, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. Like, so talking about hitting meanings and like, you'd read something and dig it. But then you felt like, well, I must not have really liked it because when they asked me the, for what it meant, I, I can't tell you what the symbolism was. I liked it, if that yeah. counts for anything. Yeah, well, you know, I, could, I, I can sort of do it now, but I've read probably thousands of books since then. I mean, I, I think you don't. I think you don't do enough reading by the time you're studying English in college. I think you haven't done enough reading yet. Oh, you mean like it's premature? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, you're 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 just you're just being introduced to literature, and you're being asked to look at it as deeply as anyone ever looks at it. 
Gotcha. And I think maybe you should maybe you should read for twenty years and then study English. I don't know. I mean, there is only so much time, but yeah. I remember meeting a guy. I was fishing with a late friend of mine on the Big Hole River. I'm sure you've fished that river in Montana. Mm-hmm. We're on the Big Hole River, and we met a guy who had was explaining to us that he had been a doctor and had just recently retired. Mm-hmm. And the two things he was never able to do as a doctor was read and fish. And so now he was devoting his retirement to fishing in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then while he was still fresh of mind to go and read, and he had in his head that he was going to read, uh, even at the, the word he used, he was going to read the canon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it struck me as like, you'll probably get more out of it than I did when I read the canon starting at 18 years of age. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you bumped to philosophy. Yeah. And was there like a thing you thought you were going to go do with it? Like, did you want to be a philosophy teacher? No. I mean, I realized at some point that that was what you did, right? No, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, if, if, if you were oh. going to get a degree in philosophy. That's the only outlet. You're not going to go, you're not going to go home and hang out your shingle, you know. Yeah. You're going to be a teacher. That's it. Or you're going to go to law school because law schools like philosophy majors because they could read complicated stuff and gotcha. figure out what it meant. <clears throat> but um, I don't know. I was just never, I wasn't on that track. It was the. Uh, Man, a bird just banged against the window, huh? Yeah. Is he dead? No. No? <laughs> no, I saw him go. He's all right. Tie some flies with him. <laughs> those, were, uh, those were doves. We could have eaten them. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, so sorry. I just wasn't on a career track. It was the sixties, and we were hippies, and we weren't looking to go to the office every day. Did you, but you liked to fish at that point too, because you grew up fishing. I did, had, but had, I didn't do much. Uh, the last two years of high school, when we lived in northern, you know, Rust Belt, northern Ohio, yeah, and then in college, I mean, it just wasn't fishing around. Yeah. Unless you you know fishing bullheads and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, when I lived in northern Ohio, um, that's when the Cuyahoga River caught fire every couple of years, and got you. Lake Erie would eat the paint off of ships coming in, and like, nobody wants to fish in that. So you just didn't feel a strong connection to it there at oh, that time. I didn't feel any connection to it at all. When in this, because if you're if you're self described like that, you were. Uh, that you were a hippie or, or affiliated with the counterculture and were familiar with fishing. Did you, at the time, were you reading uh, like Trout Fishing in America by Brodigan? I don't remember what year that came out, but... That came out later. I did read it. So um, what, what were your thoughts of that? And, uh, you know, the Curtis Creek Manifesto and all that stuff. Um, my thoughts? Well, I, you know, I always liked Brodigan. Um he might be a little thin in retrospect, uh-huh. but I liked him at the time. Yeah, Brodigan's like um, like Tom Robbins. I don't yeah. know if you read Tom, but later you can't go read Tom. Like once you get in your forties and you have kids and stuff, you can't go. Like it doesn't hold up, right? right. You're not like holy shit, this guy's a genius. Yeah, it's kind of you kind of like how did I used to think this was good? But Brodigan's mm-hmm. still funny though, man. He is still funny. Yeah, yeah. did not have a funny end. No, um, no. So when so if you 
here's I, I guess I'm kind of driving at this. Maybe I should just ask you. At what point did you? At what point did you like make these connections? Like there is such a thing as a guy. There's such a thing as a guy who writes about an activity like fishing, and if he is really good, can make a living at it. And I will shoot for that. Um, I was probably probably in the mid seventies because um, you know. When I got into fly fishing, I didn't get out. Of, I didn't get into fly fishing until I came out west in my early twenties, uh, late sixties, early seventies. Never really seen it before. It's that it, it, in the Midwest, you never saw people fly fishing. You do now, mm-hmm. but you didn't then. And I just got into it for what I think were the purest reasons. I, I thought that's beautiful. That's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. Really? And I mean, just the act of it. Yeah. Yeah, and people are catching fish, and I thought, that is just friggin' beautiful. And, and, I, what, and what, I was wanted, the year, what was the year that you had that sort of thought or epiphany? I don't know, late 60s. Okay. Maybe 70, maybe 1970. Um, and at some point, I mean, I was still trying to be a, a serious writer. Then I had a little book of poetry in print. I was writing for little literary magazines, and but I was fly fishing and I was reading Fly Fisherman magazine. I don't think Fly Fishing the West was out. Um, I think Trout, Salmon, and Steelheader was out then. There weren't many, and I just sort of. And of course, over the you know field and stream outdoor life, and guys like Lee Wolf around, and I just thought, well, people do make a living at this. Did and, you feel and, like it was coarse and low because you want because you were an aspiring poet? Did you feel like it was less artful to become like a like a like a a, a writer with sort of a beat? You know, not really, not really. I mean, there were people I knew at the time. Who thought it was? I mean, I had writer friends at the time. Who thought it wasn't? It wasn't they, like the fine arts. Yeah, they, yeah. And maybe it's not like the fine arts. I don't know. I don't well, know for most, it's not. But I yeah. think that the reason the reason that you're you and the reason that <clears throat> you've been around so long and people like you so much is that you're one of the one of the rare few who has transcended. Well, what it was was um, reading Tom McGuane. Jim Harrison, Russ Chatham, some of those guys. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, the new journalists were working in um, Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson, um, Peter Matheson. And they were, they were sort of bringing literary techniques into what had normally been journalism up to now. They were becoming dropping the pretense of objectivity and becoming characters in their own stories. Yeah. And um, and writing in a stream of consciousness. I mean, you know, electric Kool-Aid acid test was not a news story. Yeah. About LSD, it was, you know, a little deeper than that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I think it was probably the, the single writer 
that showed me that this could be done as well as any other kind of writing. It could be just as, as legitimate as literature was Tom McGuane and some of his earlier stuff. So you were reading his stuff then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like 92 in the Shade and some of the, I don't know if that was one of his earlier works. Yeah, but also his, uh, you know, he wrote for uh, Sports of Field or... I don't know. He wrote for some of the magazines, and, and well, he had, well, Harrison back then, like in the seventies, Harrison was doing hunting and fishing pieces for Sports Illustrated. Yeah, it's amazing in that era. Even though participation was not super high in this country, in that era, the room that mainstream publications made for like hook and bullet writing, a hook and bullet writing of the mm-hmm. finest, highest caliber, yeah, would find its way into very mainstream magazines. Yeah, Esquire. And that, but that's all stuff that I've always been like, like a, a thing that if, if I look at sort of the stuff I've written and where it's been, I'm always kind of like proudest of those moments when I've been able to take and wedge a thing about hunting and fishing in an unexpected mm-hmm. location. I always feel like it's like, uh, like counting coup almost. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be able to stick it in somewhere where no one would ever expect to see it. Right, it's like being a sniper. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, but you're shooting, shooting stories instead of bullets. Yeah. You know... Do you know, this is like a side note out of any kind of chronology we're following with you, but you might have some perspective on it. One of the things that troubles me most about fishing writing is that why why does spin tackle, why, why does spin tackle not spawn great writers? That's a mixed metaphor. Why does spin tackle, spin fishing, not produce the writers that fly fishing does. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of get it, but I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I've never given it a moment's thought. But it could be just that writers tend to be attracted to fly fishing uh, because it's you know, it's old and it's kind of primitive and it's complex and the aesthetics are complicated and there's a lot to write about. And so you think it's that like the writerly sensibility is drawn to fly fishing rather than like fly fishing inspires writers. Yeah, maybe. Like I say, I've never I've never thought of it before. But you're right. Name name a great. Spin fishing writer. Zane, like, Zane Gray wrote some pretty good pieces about. Now it was mostly well, ocean. Fly, yeah, because I was going to say Papa. Yeah, Hemingway. Hemingway wrote about deep water. Well, yeah. and he and he wrote about fishing trout with worms too. Um, and hoppers, big two hearted river. Yeah, fishing oh, live bait. So I, I, I mean, it's it's out there, but I don't think anybody would consider Hemingway a fishing writer. Well, I mean, he's definitely like informed by that, and I think that he's oh, yeah. like recognized as being. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he's as much of like a, he's recognized as much of being a dude who liked to watch bullfights as he is the guy like to hunt fish. But he definitely had that. But did Zane Gray fly fish? I don't know. I've but only he did, like, read the his. I think it was Fishing Virgin Seas is the book I have at home, and yeah. yeah. Well, he did some steelheading too. 
But he not only was just a writing about it, he was like an innovator of tackle and equipment. Mm. I mean, he goes into great depths describing like making custom line back when he, they didn't have line that could hold up to an 800-pound Marlin and then the mm. great depths that he went to to have this line or the product shipped from, you know, who knows where and then it was, you know, spun somewhere else and then you do all these tests and still the big ones would get away, but... So yeah. he was hardcore. He, oh, wasn't just, yeah. he wasn't just a trigger man. No. <laughs> no, he was into it. What was the first... Uh, do you recollect what year was the first year that you wrote a fishing piece where you looked at it and thought, like, that's not technical writing. It's not how-to. But it's like a piece of art about fishing and, and, and that you published. Um. Well, I think I felt that about uh, the, the essays in Trout Bum. So, and they were not, you know, it came out in, I swear it was 86. So probably by the late 70s, I was starting to do that. Like the writing things, you're like, this is what I want to do, and I just did that well. Yeah, yeah. And you were placing them where? I was placing them in uh, in fishing magazines. I was in Sports of Field, Field and Stream, Fly Fisherman, um, now defunct magazine called Fly Fishing the West. Um, I don't think Fly Rod and, um, Fly Rod and Reel was still Rod and Reel then. Uh, John Merwin had it. Mm-hmm. And I recognize I, that name. Published in there and... Here and there. And those could not have been, uh, those couldn't have been huge paychecks to no, write no. In, in those places. Mm-mm. So you kind of knew that you probably, you probably knew that you had to go toward books. Um, well, I wanted to go towards books. I think all writers want to see their name on the cover of a book. Yeah. Right? Don't you? I mean, magazines... Yeah, I hate to see someone else's name on the cover of my book. Yeah, magazines come and go, uh, newspapers. <laughs> I had a fight with my... I used to write uh, outdoor column for the newspaper for 28 years. Yeah, I want, I want to ask you about that, but uh, go ahead. Um, they, they totally screwed up one of my columns. Doesn't matter why, but they totally mucked it up. And... Uh, I called my editor and yelled at him, and he said, "Hold on, but what does that mean? Like, what did it? What what happened to it?" Well, they 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 ran it in four columns, four vertical columns at the top of the page, but the columns weren't in the right order. Got you. So it read like gibberish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I called and yelled at him, and he said. Man, that was yesterday. He said, it's on the bottom of a birdcage by now. Yeah. So. It's a shitty feeling. Yeah. But he's right. Yeah. You know. But it's like, it's painful to articulate it that way, though. Yeah. But there's a truth to it. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's newspapers. Newspa- that's the problem with newspapers and <laughs> magazines, if you're going to bring up the idea of having your name on the book, because... I've considered myself like a pretty careful reader, okay? And I'm aware of the publishing world and I pay attention to what's going on. I'll read pieces and uh, later someone will be like, uh, who wrote the piece? 
Like, you know what? You don't know. As much as I've spent my life pursuing this and in, 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 in this business, I never looked. Mm-hmm. And then you imagine that, and if you think of yourself as like a careful reader who's paying attention, and you imagine how most people perceive it, it winds up, it winds up, uh, yeah, it makes you hungry for something that, um, it, it makes you hungry for something that's more, that you could just like continue to point to it as this thing that you did. Mm-hmm. Because it sounds shallow in some ways in vain, but people do want to be like recognized for their work. Yeah, and, um, you know, I wouldn't be the first writer that was shallow in vain, right? No, no. It if, happens, it was, if there but, wasn't a little hint of it, you wouldn't be a writer. Yeah, I mean, we do sign our work, right? We could we could all write under a pseudonym and be anonymous, and yeah, but we don't. Not many of us do. Um, yeah, I just I and the other thing is, I mean, people are gonna somebody reads a book and likes it, they're gonna remember who wrote it, and. A book could conceivably last, no guarantees, but, you know, a book could last, whereas a magazine, right, it's going to end up on the coffee table in a dentist's office eventually, and then it's going to get recycled, and it's going to be gone. People don't retain them. Well, some people do. Some people save every issue of some magazine. Yeah, but, but I mean, not like they retain a book, man. When yeah. people are done reading the book, they don't throw it in the garbage. They go bring it to a right. donation center. Well, or they put it in a bookshelf. You saw my office. Yeah. I don't know how many books I have down there. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save terms and conditions apply man i just got a new truck before i even drove my new truck anywhere i wasn't gonna drive it anywhere until i put a deck system in it that's how, that's what a believer i am in decked i always thought they were a great deal but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up it's like i didn't know there was a problem with them i don't know they seem great to me this is an improvement on perfection the new system made in the usa gives you 10 to 30 percent bigger drawers to fit more gear it's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right in your truck bed. You still have a truck bed. You can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. 
The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Decked is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. When you like when you came out with your with your with your first book, and then many I know many of your subsequent books, and you can correct me if if, if it's in fact all of them, are collected pieces. Mm-hmm. Has, do, do all of your books appear in print before they go into your books? Or do you have original material that appeared nowhere else that goes into your books? Uh, there's been original material that appeared nowhere else. And most of the stuff that was originally published somewhere else has been expanded in, into a book chapter. Have you ever thought about... Uh, like like why is it you haven't done a um like like a full narrative book uh i did um at the grave of the unknown fisherman oh that is yeah okay tell me about that book like what that was like doing or what was like doing that book it was um you know it was one of those uh seasons of the angler thing i mean it was a it was a four season thing and i just had this idea that that would be the way to to do a book is to go through the seasons and um and i wrote the chapters as essays and i published most of them in in magazines and then collected them into a book yeah the thing about that's thing about your writing that uh what is i kind of admire most about it is even like the books your books are often collections of of pieces that 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 are freestanding pieces like they mm-hmm. they make sense and work in a freestanding form like chapter length form mm-hmm. but throughout it is this is this broader story of you and your life and your friends and one of the things that most strikes me in it is that the the, the affection and love you have for friends that have been your friends for a long time mm-hmm. and you come to kind of know them and you have a way of really capturing this long arc of friendship and how it works and goes from you being young and then you're kind of not young 
right together mm-hmm. and then you're all kind of like past some tipping point headed yeah. in another direction together and it does together create this sense of that it is this long meta narrative yeah and another thing that happens that that was really striking me with your new book is that i'm looking at it like you're always somewhere else right you're always on trips mm-hmm. you travel it seems like you travel incessantly and in a fly route of your own you're gone you spend a lot of time in labrador you're up in alaska you're fishing around colorado i think you're in washington mm-hmm. you spend time in idaho i don't even know where else in your new book but while this is going on there's like this life that you're having where mm-hmm. your mother's dying yeah um there's a big forest fire ripping by your house and you're on this trip in maine checking in back home and there's like chores that didn't get taken care of back home and there's a flood that destroys people you're the property of people that you're close with back home and i think that a lot of writers like like with with travel writing is sort of it's that you're just immersed in the experience but you do well i think at capturing all just like the nagging shit Mm -hmm. that you cannot escape from yeah like I used to joke that I used to joke about that, that if you look at like what, what a writer writes, what's in a writer's head, they don't match up because if you spend a bunch of time somewhere and you're writing about it, you're, you're just like really cherry picking the opportunities. An example would be we do a show where an episode of the show is 22 minutes long, but we'll go out. How many hours will Giannis, How many hours of footage would we film? It's a hundred to one most of the time. So a hundred to one ratio. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go and put together, if you go on a, on a trip and you're gone four or five days and you put together 22 minutes, you are like cherry picking. Yeah. You're not creating a representation of what exactly happened there. Because if you were, for every two minutes that you watched, there'd be one minute where you're watching people sleep. Mm-hmm. So you are doing like a there's, a, there's a fiction to nonfiction in that you're weighting things and talking about what's of interest. Oh yeah, well, and you're not, you're not only doing that, but you're you're pulling in you're pulling in memories. You're uh, you're changing time. You know, time isn't always uh, uh, linear. Yeah, and because, you certainly don't. And that's one of the things that, like, the craft of your writing too is you're not you're not deceptive about chronology. But you're just very good at like occasionally, dealing with occasionally vague about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, just like. When you get done, when you're back from something, I think that you're not really concerned with, well, I did this, and then this, and then this, and then this. I think you're more concerned about, here's the flow of my ideas. Yeah. And and, and I'm not going to be, I don't need to tell you, like, this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened, necessarily in that order. Sometimes I'll see, like, I'll be cruising along in one of your pieces, and I'll all of a sudden, like, whatever, you flip the page, you realize it's about to end, and I'll think, my God, how is he going to... He doesn't have enough space left to get us back out of here. Right? Right. To to do all the shit to get on the airplanes and load like there's no space. And yeah, then you all of a sudden all of a sudden you're just like, and that's all I have to say about that subject. Yeah. And it's just refreshing. Well, it's why you never see anybody in the movies go to the bathroom. Pulp fiction. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> but but he dies. He gets shot in the bathroom. So. But um, I mean, it's just assumed that people go to the bathroom 
yeah. throughout the movie, but you don't have to see it. Exactly. I mean, you don't have to tell everybody everything. Yeah. You tell them it's worth telling. Yeah. But, but you know, so, so I'm kind of saying two things that are crossways a little bit because you do great with that and you do great with delivering a version of a story that's most useful to the reader to get the reader where you want them to go. But in that calculation that you're making, you're also not abandoning all sense because you get the sense in reading your work that you're still always very aware of the world that you left behind when you went somewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, you are, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 uh, but I think all people are, but I don't know that many people have really embraced it and has done as well as you've done it where you can be writing about a trip you're on, but also you're writing about this kind of like the loss of your mother mm-hmm. and the, the, the weird family stuff that goes around the, the death of a family member and what are your obligations to everyone when that happens. But it's all occurring sort of like this like humming noise in your head yeah. while you fish. Like when you're out of town and you know something bad's happening at home, you can't escape it. And the rhythm with which you go from being in the moment to being, oh shit, there's a big fire by my house. Yeah. On the other, you know, well, 2,000 miles away is really, it, it's impressive. Well, it's stream of consciousness and it's more like, it's stream of consciousness writing seems familiar to people because it's how people think. That's a good point. You know, you don't you don't spend an hour thinking about one thing. You spend an hour bouncing around about 20 things. And if you're writing, 17 of those things are of no interest to anyone, so you leave them out. Yeah. But you you bounce around and um you know, you're someplace or you're someplace on a fishing trip, you see something that reminds you of something that happens at home or somebody you haven't talked to at home or whatever. And uh, that's how people think. And so they recognize that in a piece of writing. What is your, what is your gauge? How do you know, like, like when you get into something that's not interesting, the 17 things that aren't interesting to other people, who, who or what are you imagining to know when you've gotten there? That you're now into things that are of interest only to John Girock. Um, well, it's somebody. I think this was actually my old high school English teacher said. Every time you say something as a writer, you have to ask yourself, "Okay, but who gives a shit?" Yeah. And so you just do that. You say, "Why would anyone care about this?" Well, no one would, so let's skip this and go on to the next thing that might interest someone. I mean, it takes a tremendous, <laughs> it really takes a tremendous ego to assume that anything at all you have to say would be of interest to anyone else. Yeah. And so you understand you're really out there exposed. I mean, you're spilling your guts to people and the least you can do is to try to do it well and, and in a way that's useful to them. That's the thing too, is that, that I, I find that you do well. And I don't know if you mean to do it well is you do as much as I talk about like being like transcendent in, in writing or transcending genre writing and turn it into 
turning it into art and something that's beautiful and that can move people emotionally or make them reconsider the world and their place in it. You also have, you do, you also deal in the technical. Mm -hmm. There's a thing I read in your new book that had never occurred to me before where, um, I can't remember. I can't remember what piece it was in, but you'll, you'll remember this when I bring it up is that, uh, let me approach this a different way. If I'm standing on a riverbank, okay. Mm -hmm. And I see a fish, a trout rise. I'll be like, there's a trout. Okay. And then I'll see, let's say I'm slightly down. I'm looking like uh, downstream. I'm, I'm facing the river. And I'm looking downstream toward 10 o'clock. And I'm like, there's a trout. And then all of a sudden, a couple minutes later, fish rises at two o'clock. I say, there's another one. And then one goes at noon and I'll be like, another one. And it wasn't until reading your recent book that it occurred to me that that could be a fish who's moving around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's just like, like I get it now, but it's like never conceptually. I always would have been like one, two, three trout. Yeah. I, I the idea that he's, he's like actively going back and forth through some area. Yeah. Creating I, the illusion that most guys would come and think it was a shitload of trout. I figured that out on the Henry's fork years ago. These big trout would get in a, a run, usually not drakes, uh, but, but smaller bugs. And, they would just, they'd, they'd drift down a run, and they'd just eat one here, and they'd move up and eat one there, and eat one there. Might eat five bugs, and then they'd just drop down and just drop back and do it again. And your first thought is, there are six big rainbows in here. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're still casting to where the one went. Exactly. Because you just, and you're, even though you know fish move all over the place, you talk about another thing in a Labrador where they put a, some kind of tracking mechanism or, or tag on a brook trout that traveled 30 miles upriver. Yeah. But, like, I get that intellectually. Like, I understand that. But in looking at, like, I, when a fish rises, it's somehow I realize, this is funny now, all these years I've sat there, I've imagined him somehow being, like, static in space. Mm-hmm. So often they are. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times they are. He really is just there. They just, fish do whatever they need to do to survive and, and flourish. Whatever they need to do, within reason. They can't get out and walk on land, but some of them stay in a half mile of stream their whole life. Some of them go out to the ocean, swim to the Sea of Japan, and eat shrimp. You know, they just do what they want. They do what they need to do. Is that like, uh, is understanding that kind of, keep you going as a fisherman i mean i know you obviously fish because that's your it's become your livelihood right so so there's that mm-hmm. extra bit of motivation but like how do you really um like what keeps you fishing because you kind of write about fishing these, some of these same places where you've been fishing these same places for decades well because you never quite get it right the same thing that keeps you writing i mean you might do well at it but you're never going to completely do it right or exhaust the subject. And it's fun. So you keep doing it. It's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. Like you feel like you've never, like you, you can't, like you've never mastered anything Mm-mm. with fishing. No. Fishing or writing or anything else. Anything else worth doing. Yeah. You have a line in one of your books. 
in an earlier book I read, and you also mentioned in your new book, this idea that um that there's when it comes to fishing, and I, I and I've I've quoted you on this a, a number of times, even to some audiences where uh, you say in fishing, there you, you tend to view the world there's, as there's your party, mm-hmm. and then the assholes, right? But it's what's funny when I read that from you is that um everybody does that, yeah. But what's funny, like a guy like you though, is you're producing all this beautiful work for the consumption of obviously the assholes. <laughs> like you hope to sell books beyond your immediate social circle. So it just like brings up this interesting idea of like how like I generally like in life, right? I want like when I look at politically and, and culturally in the country, sort of the question I ask myself when I look at things that are going on, I'm like, what's good for what's best for hunters and fishermen? Yeah. It's just like, like I feel that that obligation personally, and I feel that obligation professionally to kind of look at that lens of like, what of this is what, what's good for hunters and fishermen in America on this issue. I have that, but I also have the feeling of when you pull in and you're, there's a truck there where you're going and you're like, son of a bitch. Yeah. I hate, yeah. hate that guy. It's, it's just, a, it's, it's like a funny thing of perception. Yeah. Yeah. But see, everybody else thinks that too. I mean, if I pull up in a river and go, well, uh, look, 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 there's an asshole standing in my pool. <laughs> he looks back at me in my pickup truck and goes, well, that asshole wants my pool. Yeah. We, all, we all do it. And, and it's, well, like, what's your take on it? I mean, do you think about it much or is it just like just a natural thing? Oh, it's just a natural thing. And if you just go talk to the guy. You wind up loving him. Yeah. I mean, if you just, I, you know, I've had people come up and stand while I was fishing and, and I say, you want in? I'll go to the next pool. Do you have a sort of uh, of a composite kind of individual or a friend or whatever that when you're writing, you imagine yourself that that they're your bullshit gauge? Yeah. That they're, that they're who you're talking to? I do. I do. I mean, it changes from time to time, but um, I developed this trick. I, you know, I wrote... Um, a column a week for 28 years. I can't do the math, but there's a lot of stinking columns in the newspaper, about, mostly about fishing, some, some hunting, some other stuff. And, you know, I, I, I started that when I was pretty young, and I kind of struggled with the style I wanted. I always wanted to write in a very conversational style. And I had this running correspondence with my my oldest continuous friend ed engel who's also a a fishing writer and we were we were also poets together back in the day oh so you guys go way back we yeah Yeah. and um he's worked for the forest service he's a he's a fantastic outdoorsman but um i just and we had this correspondence and it was it just flowed like water and i one day just on a whim I was going to write a story about, I don't know, going fishing somewhere, and I just typed, Dear Ed. And I just told the story like I was writing to Ed, except, you know, like slightly more incomplete sentences. And, yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> yeah. And less profanity. You fulfilled and, your obligations yeah. to the reader. Um, and then when I was done, I scratched out Dear Ed, and that was it. 
right? Yeah. No, See, a good so, tip that you used to always give me when we were writing the guidebook, you'd say, yeah, just imagine you're at the bar with one of your buddies that doesn't know quite as much about the subject as you do. You had a beer or two. You're feeling you know, pretty loose. You can, you can roll it all out fast and then imagine you're just going to deliver that content to that person. Yeah. I, I, it's similar to that. I remember in, in, in writing school, in, in graduate school, I would turn in you know these pieces in workshop and i was working on magazine pieces that i later published and uh a, a, a teacher became a very dear friend of mine dear to mcnamer a, a novelist she would say she would look at him and be like now it's now you're like writing <laughs> yeah now you're writing and it's annoying to me you know it was better mm-hmm. when i felt that you were like telling me something yep yep you know because you're slipping into this thing how you imagine a writer would sound Tom Wolfe uh, gave a series of lectures somewhere, Princeton or somewhere, and I, I, a friend of mine had him, and I listened to him. And he said a great thing. He said that his students, he'd hear them around campus, and he said they just they spoke so easily, and they had this real facility with language and slang, and they were playful. And then he said, you get them in a writing class, and they write like they're Victorian lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> with all these here, heretofores and whereases and stuff. And yeah. he said, my, my job was to say, you already play the instrument. Just write it down. Yeah. You know, you've been talking for 20 years. You know how to have a conversation. Just write it down. Yeah. But it's not a given that everyone knows how to have a conversation, but I think that it's a given that yeah. most people who go into the field probably yeah. come from that because they have sort of like a love of ex- a love of of, oh. of like explaining and telling. Mm-hmm. For, for the bullshit thing that I'm talking about, which, which is probably the same thing, like your friend Ed, is I, I have in my head, like anything I do, like whatever kind of media I might be dealing with in the moment, I always imagine... I always try to imagine the, the response of my two older brothers. Yeah. And gauging like if I like if I'm doing good, it's the kind of thing that I would hope that they would stumble across. Mm-hmm. If I'm not being my best self, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, I hope those guys don't stumble across this. Yeah. And that is and that to me is like worked well as as a guide but i don't think everyone has the luxury of having older brothers who are interested in the same shit they're interested in yeah which i realize is a luxury you know it is a luxury the luxury i've had is i've had some really good colleagues and teachers who've, who've taught me things about writing and um often not much but but just a little piece that i can put together um I always think of Ed because he's a he's a withering critic. He's really just cut you down to size. He once said of Troutbum, somebody asked him how he liked Troutbum, and he said, "Well, he said I think it makes up in enthusiasm what it lacks in quality." Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I see but, from your perspective that might be bad, but here's the thing: like a word that sticks in my head for. Not not just Trombone, but but all your books is just like an exuberance. Yeah, 
Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better. Because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. I don't know if you really like, I don't know if you really like life and being alive as much as yourself on the page does, but there's an infectious enthusiasm for just being alive. Well, I, not I, that you paint I like it, like, it. I've had a yeah, good time with it. But know? it's not like you paint it as just, it's not like you paint being alive as just like nothing but just good times and laughs. Yeah. 
because being alive is in some ways it's a struggle and a hassle mm-hmm. but you paint being alive as like something that's really worth doing yeah well don't you think it is yeah but i think it's also easy to fall into a trap where you lose sight of how worthwhile it all is yeah yeah for sure or that you don't take time to to say to yourself like my god is it worthwhile being alive yeah yeah because you can have weeks go by without realizing that and it's like one of the beauties of the natural world is like for me the reminder I get it through my kids now because I have young kids. But for me, the, a long time, the only real genuine reminder of that was the natural world. Yeah. It oh, was yeah. the time that I felt. It was the time that I would be like, holy shit, being alive, man. I need to do more of this. Would be like inspired by, mm-hmm. by how much you love your friends and love being outside with them. Yeah. And, and seeing things with them and now like i get it in a very different way because i get it because i have young kids and and the minute you need a, anytime you feel like slog slog down or slow down or in a bog just take one second to imagine not being able to see them grow into what they'll become right and it makes you just really really glad yeah about the fact that you're breathing air because it's such a, a like a daunting, miserable mm-hmm. thought. Well, and you know, you spend a lot of time outside, you know, with other people who spend a lot of time outside, and you just see great stuff. Yeah, you know, you see beautiful stuff, and not everybody. I don't think everybody has that in their life, and or they don't. You know, you schlep off to work for the nine thousandth day in a row. You know, maybe you don't look around and go, geez, it's a nice day. Do, do, you, do, you self, do you self-identify as an environmentalist, like in the way that mm-hmm. many people would recognize that? Mm-hmm. Um, in your, I think when you're talking about, you know, you, you spend a lot of time talking about like, like, like habitat for fish, so like what fish need to live. Mm-hmm. But you also spend time talking about just sort of like the general, um, way that things go with nature and and i think that in sometimes in there there's like a bit of um in your voice and in your worldview there's a bit of cynicism and maybe like a little bit of pessimism mm-hmm. that 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 we're that it's like that we won't be able to stop the bleeding yeah, well, I I think that we may not be able to. Um, I mean, it's hard when you've just had the the two biggest hurricanes on record within months of each other, and we've pulled out of the Paris Accords. Yeah, um, and the EPA is dropping all their regulations, all their environmental regulations. And you think, well. I don't know, maybe this is the end. But, you know, all you can do is just say to people in a, in a roundabout way, this is, not only is this beautiful and worthwhile, not only is it good for you to spend time out here, but we'll die without it. Yeah. And you really should maybe think about that the next time you go to the polls. Or maybe you should just think about going to the stinking polls. I mean, it it kills me that half the eligible voters in this country 
don't vote. After all, the people who've died, so they have a right to vote. Yeah. Um, no, that, that, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You know, it's it's just shameful. Do you think that you have an obligation <clears throat> in in your work? Um, like, like when you bring up an idea in, in your books, I remember you're talking about being in a. a you're talking about being in some remote outpost somewhere. I can't remember what it was. And you're saying that everyone there was either, uh, everyone there was either there to go fishing or there for mineral extraction. Mm-hmm. And you kind of talked about the two different yeah. views they had of, of the future of that place. When you're, when you're talking about that kind of stuff and thinking about those things, are you putting it in there because you can't, um, you can't help yourself but put it in there? Or do you feel that you have an obligation because you're talking to outdoorsmen and fishermen, do you have an obligation to steer them in, in a direction that you feel that they need to go in order to understand? Probably a little of both. I don't, I don't uh, sit down at the keyboard with a sense of obligation. Um, but when something like that comes up, I feel like I should make note of it. Mm-hmm just to keep people aware. I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm just preaching to the choir. I don't know if there's a lot of people who read me who wouldn't consider themselves environmentalists or conservationists or, you know, in some way. So you don't think that somewhere there's a guy, I bet you there are, I bet you there are guys who read you and think you're funny and they love to fish, but it annoys them when you go down that path. Oh, yeah, I suppose there are. There are. I, I mean, I'm not saying I've talked to them, but yeah. I just, no, there are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, no, there have to be. Um, well, I don't care. I mean, people like that need to be tweaked, too. Yeah. I mean, maybe they just need to be reminded, well, well, all these guys I'm hanging out with having such a great time, they're worried about the environment. I wonder if I should look into that. Yeah. You know, I don't know. And you have concerns too. So there's like the environment, which is like the place we live in, our, in what's in our backyards and what's in our communities and just this big, huge, broad thing. But you also seem to have a lot of concerns for wilderness. And mm-hmm. there, was a, there was a thing that, that you mentioned, you're talking about float planes. And, and you start out, and you start out, this is in a, in a fly rod of your own, and you're talking about float planes. You start out by describing this kind of like crazy place you arrive at mm-hmm. and the things that go on there and the wildlife there. And there's like graves, some possibly old French trappers laying around and all and this 10 foot high mound of caribou antlers. And you paint this picture. And you go like, yeah, that's the kind of place where a float plane can get you. And then you go on to explain how you used to have a more, uh, you had this like different view of float planes and the access they provided. And now that your view of float planes is sort of tainted by the idea that, Oh, that's right. Everything comes at a cost. Yeah. Yeah. And the simple fact of this plane allowing me to be here in some way, some way that's a corrupting force too now. Well, yeah. And it like brings us, and it brings us kind of like, it brings us bittersweet, sort of feeling to it yeah but it's just a, it's just by way of reminding people that there is a cost i mean I, I i think i remember that passage it's something like you know you've you've gone to this absolutely remote uh 
beautiful, pristine place, and you step out of the float plane onto the pontoon as there's a stinking oil slick from your plane. Yeah, your plane. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I just feel it's worth reminding people that that's there. But it's, it isn't, I don't know how calculated it is. You know what I mean? I mean, it occurs to me, and so, and I'm writing about what's what's happening with me. So I, I say, well, here's this. Yeah, because in my stream of consciousness, this is a, this is a real theme that ought to be explored. Yeah, and I it mean, passes the test of is this something that people are going to give a shit about? I should show you the photograph. I've got it somewhere. A good friend of mine, Mike Dvorak, wonderful uh, black and white photographer took some photos um, on a trip to Labrador. And one of them is this beautiful shot down the, the board dock out to the float plane. Beautiful old de Havilland uh, beaver tied up. And in the foreground are just oil barrels. Yeah. Like 20 or 30 of them. And I said... Was that, I asked him, was that intentional? He said, oh, hell yes. Yeah, that's good. <coughs> Have you read John McPhee's Coming Into the Country? His yeah. His History of Alaska? Yeah, but not for a long time. He spends a, a significant portion of that book talking about the, the mm-hmm. oil drums, oil barrels. <sighs> and it's really like, in a way, it's not heavy-handed, but it's just this ever-present thing is oil drums. Well, Alaska is, I mean, you go up to Alaska, it's beautiful, it's wilderness, catch all these fish and the whole it, I mean the only reason there's any civilization up there is oil and, and salmon yeah yeah it's crazy thing about it. used to be you know 100 years ago sea otters yeah I've had a feeling just kind of the, back to that feeling of uh, the conflictedness right that you love places and so you want to go see them but knowing that somehow your presence yeah I've had criticism before like I, I was I was hunting one time in Anwar the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Mm-hmm. And and I remember hearing criticism from someone, I can't remember who it was, was pointing out like how unfair it was. Be like, here you are, you want this place to be hands off and and no one can go there, but you get to go there. Like you have the the economic means to go here. And so you're saying like all the things that should or shouldn't happen here, most people would never be able to go there. What gives you a right to have an opinion about what happens to this place? It's not fair. Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, like, I would, if you, if I could make a deal right now, though, if someone came to me and said, yeah, we can, we'll, we we'll can never, sc- we'll never touch it again, but you can't but, go, but you can't go. I would say deal. Yeah, me too. I would say, okay, great. Me too. We're, let's get the lawyer and sign this. Let's get the lawyer and draw this thing up right now. I will right. never come back. And since that'll never happen, people just have to believe you when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing. What do you feel about... Where do you feel that catch-release fishing is at? In, in light of, like, in light of kind of, like, new thinking and new awareness that you see in the food world, in the chef world, mm-hmm. of people sort of, like, sort of having this, this idea that they're... Um, reconnecting with sources of food and people want to have these like these experiences where you see food go from you know the water to your plate yeah i think it's useful and necessary to a degree 
because there are so there are too many f- people fishing for the fisheries not to be degraded seriously. So I think the idea that you know I fish a lot, and if I killed all the fish I caught, I would make a big dent. Yeah, but you know, so but-, but but I think it's permissible. I'm, I was never one of those guys who thought killing a fish was murder. Yeah. And I've and I've written about that any number of times. Um, talk about eating a char in the, at the end of the book. Yeah, and the guy chunking up char and mixing it in with under the seat of a plane. Well, th- there was that, but there was also um, I just we went out and caught a couple of big char, like six eight pound char, beautiful fish, and flew them back. And Francis, the camp cook, cooks them up. But I said in that, I said. Something like, you know, I didn't blink when I killed it. And I didn't think twice about it. Uh, somehow I felt like the world owed me that fish. Yeah. And I was happy to eat it. There's another passage where you're up in a place and you're fishing. And you, actually, you actually talk about you're in camp and, you know, I don't know if it's the same trip. You're talking about being up there and eating king salmon. Mm-hmm. But then you do kind of point out that um, some of these places – like in Alaska, when you get these glimpses of abundance, right? Because in Alaska, you'd be in a river in, 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 uh, 10 and a half months out of the year. I mean, shit in the river, right? But then there's this, this, this flurry and, and people coincide their trips to catch the flurry and it creates this right. like sense of never ending abundance. Mm-hmm. And you talk about this feeling that, um, some people have a hard time being around that without being, I'm going to take 50 pounds of these things home and let them get freezer burned in my freezer. When thinking about the, you know, the environment and the state of clean water and healthy fisheries and, and wildlife habitat, you, you kind of get into this point where you're talking about you can either live with regret about the things that are gone or the things that have become overexploited. Mm-hmm. Like live with regret and become bitter or just look for new water. Yeah. And I feel like you're being like, you're being metaphorical there. Yeah, for sure. Good, good pickup on yeah. that. Yeah. Like, like, can you, can you explain your thinking on that? Like kind of what you, what you mean when you say that in a, in a literal sense and what you kind of mean in a more, in a more figurative sense, like live with regret or look for new water. Well, in a figurative sense, it's what we were talking about earlier. Um, yeah, you know, maybe the world's ending, but why give up? Yeah. I mean, it we we could stop it maybe. We could turn things around. So I mean, you can't just give up. Right? Yeah. And then there's the uh there's the subtext uh of every time you go find new water um you know, you're one more guy exploiting that place Mm -hmm. so i just i I just would like people to think about this stuff it doesn't mean you you have to change what you do or anything i mean i don't plan to stop fishing because i think there's too heavy a burden on the streams but i think it's i think it's uh worthwhile to be aware that there is too heavy a burden on the streams that's why a lot of us catch and release fish yeah, um, to continue doing what you love, but not have a yeah. Just I mean, there's no 
you know, I'm happy to go someplace, catch two fish. There's a little creek up here, not too far from here. Um, I like to go up there in the late summer, fall, and get a couple of brook trout and a handful of uh, perfect little doorknob-sized boletus mushrooms and some wild raspberries and either cook them there or come home cook them at home uh yeah i usually cook them a little they're usually a little better if i cook them at home and um i i would never want to lose that yeah and a lot of a lot of places i go kill a fish and eat it shore lunch yeah you talk about that in your book we were in the northwest territories a couple of years ago and uh great bear lake and the um the the fishing was so good, we wanted a five pound lake trout for lunch, and we had to fish all morning till almost one o'clock to catch one that small. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. And that's I mean, the- that's just it's it's it really is wonderful to see that kind of abundance for sure. But you gotta there are there are people who would have kept all those fish if they could. Yeah. Not as many as there used to be. I mean, I really think people are becoming aware that, you know, why kill 50 pounds of fish? Like more aware about the finiteness of yeah. uh, of nature. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if I can do it, everybody else could do it, and then what happens? Uh, I think there, I think it was in that book, there's a, I recounted an argument between a bush pilot and a yep. sport and the guy said, well, why not keep 50 pounds of salmon? They're going to die anyway. And the, the pilot said, well, they're going to die after they spawn, and every one you kill is one that isn't going to spawn. Yeah. And then he went on to ask the guy, are you really that stupid, or are you just playing dumb so you can go on being an asshole? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no I, I, that's a term you used to see so much. I think I read it in your thing. It's like, there used to be this idea of the game hog. Yeah. Which I hadn't heard in a long time. Uh-huh. Um, do you, you're, you're careful about not naming places that would be easy for people to get to. Mm-hmm. But have you felt, have you come under criticism with friends or have you ever felt like that because your work's so widely known that you've provided sort of a compass and map to people looking for for good fishing or doesn't it work that way that you write about somewhere and then come back and it's different than it was because you drive because you personally drove everyone there i've never been directly criticized for that but i know it happens i mean i've written about the um the south platte river cheeseman canyon down through deckers which isn't as good now as it used to be and it's really not because of Fishing pressure so much as uh, whirling disease and then flash floods that silted everything in, killed a lot of bugs. And, you know, it's coming back in a, after a fashion. But um, that was crowded when I first wrote about it. And is it more crowded now because I wrote about it? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I've never really been held to account for that, but I'm aware of it. I'm aware it happens. Yeah, but I think that it's probably safe to say that. But it's also why why I'm so careful about not 
saying where places are. Um, some places, Ed Engel again, said to me once, his rule is he won't r- write about any stream he can roll cast across. And he said, and I can roll cast a hell of a long way. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You, uh, the thing I need to keep in mind is that rec- regulated recreational fishermen are not going to destroy a fishery. They might destroy some bit of the experience of participating in the fishery, but mm-hmm. they're not going to destroy the fishery. They're not going to fish out every fish like a, like a, a toxic spill would. Yeah. But they're going to degrade it to the point where, where you once could go catch 18 to 20 inch fish on a dry fly. Now the best you can do is a foot long fish. You've seen that. Um, not quite to that extreme, but yeah, I've seen it. Like, like you, you've, you've felt the, the repercussions of a lot of recreational fishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have a thing that, uh, you, you're talking about in a funny way. You're talking about being in a camp in the past. You're talking about, you know, having been pretty drunk where you're blowing on a fire and like passed out in the fire and burnt your beard. Yeah. And uh and then I think in that same thing you talk about you just don't drink like you you kind of like don't drink like you used to. Yeah. Is that sort of a um is stopping drinking sort of like this acknowledgement that is it like a personal acknowledgement that you won't be on earth forever? Or was it different than that? Well, I think I always knew I wasn't going to be on earth yeah, forever, we know but, it, but we don't know it know it. <laughs> um no, it was more that I just, I, I knew I was drinking more than I probably should. And I knew it wasn't good for me, and I wasn't feeling good, and uh, I was in my 40s, I was making a living as a writer, and I just thought, I, I'm not enjoying this like I used to. It doesn't make me feel good. And I need my wits about me if I'm going to keep doing this. I think it was more, it was less an actual intimation of mortality and more just the idea that um, at 40, I could have another 40 years in me Mm -hmm. if I don't pickle my brains, right? Yeah. But if I pickle my brains, maybe I've only got 20 was it Mickey Mann who said, if I'd have known I was going to live this long, I would have take- taken better care of myself? Yeah. 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 I, I find that like, like a joke I often make is when I think about how old I am or other people's age, I always double it and then remind them that they're halfway to X. Yeah. So I'm not halfway to 86. Yeah. What's helpful is I know how long I've been alive and I can picture that span of time. So understanding where I'm at in the halfway mark helps me like conceptualize whether or not I have that long again yeah. reaching out ahead of me. And yeah. I'm now at the point where I might not have I might not have the amount of time behind me ahead of me. I could. Yeah. Well try being halfway to hundred and forty. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that you're gonna do you feel like you're going to be doing more books? Are you going to keep writing? Like, do you have a plan to not write? Or you think you just write till you just cannot write? Uh, well, I'm going to write till I can't write. I, I just signed a contract um, earlier this year for two more books over six years. With your same publisher? At, yeah. 
So that's a nice relationship you've had with your publisher, man. A long, nice relationship, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it isn't all um, sweetness and roses, but, um, you know, it's kind of a weird, friendly, but slightly adversarial relationship. But, um, yeah, they've been good to me. Simon Schuster's been a really good outfit. Yeah. And, um, I mean, they've made me a good living, and my and my agent, Pamela Malpas, too. Do you want to say any kind of, like, do you have any kind of little stump speech plug you'd like to give for your new book? Yeah. I would like to give one. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. I think that, I want to say if you like to fish, but I think it's like, if you like to fish, laugh, if you like being alive on earth, uh, I think it's like worthwhile to check out um john gearock's latest book which is just like new right fairly new yeah just this spring a fly rod of your own and it is your 17th or 18th or something like that 18th so once you tuck into that book and dig it you do not need to worry about running out of more books for a while so yeah they're all still in print thank god thank you very much for joining us on the show Happy to do it. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.